This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Right now, ask how you can save up to 50% on washer and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Later, Crusaders. America's the greatest country in the world. How are you? Happy Saturday. I was just flicking around the channels about an hour ago. You know those movies when you're flicking through the channels and, and you come across a movie and you have to watch it no matter where it is? No matter where you are in the movie, it could be 10 minutes left or just start it, anywhere in between, and you just have to watch the rest of it. Uh, I got a couple of those. But I have a new one now because I didn't even know this movie was on TV. And it was a TV movie yet. But Zero Dark Thirty is on. Oh, that movie's awesome. It's so good. And I've only seen it once. So I watched like 20 minutes. And then uh, it got to the scene where the girl told all the Navy SEALs about the mission. Remember they went to go see the, the helicopters that are the, the, the stealth helicopters? Just crazy. And he told the Navy SEALs what they're doing. Because the Navy SEALs are like, why do we need a stealth helicopter to go to Libya? I'm like, well, we're not going to Libya. We're going to go kill Osama bin Laden. It was awesome. Coolest scene ever. So the movie's just about to get sweet. Uh, press pause. Here we are. But if you haven't seen Zero Dark Thirty yet, that's good stuff. And then tonight, I'm going to go watch 13 Hours. Um, if anyone's seen it, if you've seen it, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. one 900 3393. I'm going to watch it tonight. We'll report back next week, of course. Um, but as I was saying with Salcedo a moment ago, there is nothing. There's two, there's two, two good things about this movie. The, the second most important thing is what it's going to do to Hillary Clinton's chances for president. By the way, I don't think she's a shoe in to be the nominee. I mean, it was, it's always been odd to me. We'll talk more about this later. But it's always been a little strange to me that people assumed that, of course, she would be the nominee. Front runner, most certainly. But assume no matter what? I don't think so. Because people thought the same thing in 2008, and now she's doing worse than she was in 2008, if you look at all the polls, compared to the 2008 polls. So she's less inevitable than 2008, and she didn't win in 2008, so I don't even think she'll be the nominee. I think Joe Biden will be the nominee. But again, we'll talk about that later. Nothing will hurt Hillary Clinton's chances of becoming president more than this movie, 13 Hours. Not Donald Trump, not a Benghazi committee. There's nothing that could hurt her chances more, because this movie, a Michael Bay blockbuster movie, We'll take the word Benghazi out of the echo chamber and put it into pop culture. And so many people across the country who have no idea what Benghazi is, have never even heard the word Benghazi, are going to leave the theaters this weekend and the next weekend and the following weekend with a lot of questions. And I'm really glad you know all the answers and you're going to be ready for them. 
and it's already bringing things back up. You read a review. The first review came from The Hollywood Reporter. And The Hollywood Reporter is talking about uh, what happened that night, right? They're talking about stand-down orders and Donald Trump and who said what when and who lied to the parents and all this stuff. It's like, whoa, we never thought the, the Hollywood Reporter would be writing about Benghazi. Getting out of the echo chamber. It's huge. So hard. But Michael Bay was able to pull it off. Who would have thunk it? So if you've seen it, I'd love, I'd love to get your thoughts. one 888 I want to play a clip from uh, some of the families of the victims um, on Megyn Kelly the other day. Just heart-wrenching. Oh, and that's, that's the most important reason for this movie. What a tribute to the four Americans who were killed. Three of them from San Diego, where I'm reporting right now. And uh, what a tribute to them and a tribute to the men who risked their lives trying to save them. So that's the most important thing. 13 hours. We go see it tonight. I hope you can make some time this weekend. Well, speaking of Hillary, I want to start with this. We'll talk about the debate a little later. I'm sure you've heard these clips a million times, but uh, so maybe we'll skip some of the clips, but I want to do a little breakdown. I want to do a breakdown different than, uh, than perhaps other shows you've heard talking about the politics of each of these. I want to look at them from a, I don't even know what the right word is. Analytical is not the right word. A um, like a debate team standpoint, because I think it's kind of goofy that we have these debates and we judge who's going to be the best president based off these debates. Even though the skill sets to be good at a debate have nothing to do with being a good president, but this is the system we've decided. So um, I want to look at it and say, well, just from a debate perspective, like what, like this is how you win a one-on-one conversation in a debate format. And Donald Trump did dominated this one part. Ted Cruz did amazing in his other job part. So we'll, we'll uh, break it down from that perspective coming up a little bit later. A little debate team 101, I guess you could call it. But first I want to start with Hillary. This is a really fascinating moment uh, for, for her and for our country. And I do want to open this up to you as well. Get your thoughts on this. This is Hillary Clinton in a forum in Iowa on fusion. I don't really know what fusion is, but, uh, but here it is. Clip one. White privilege is a term that more people are talking openly about these days. Certainly people like me have long understood what it means. Secretary Clinton, can you tell us what the term white privilege means to you? And can you give me an example from your life or career when you think you have benefited from it? Well... Crowd loves it. <laughs> crowd loves it. Amazing. We'll stop there. Before we get to the answer, um, we got to talk about that, that question there. I love what she says. You know, people like me have long understood the privilege that you white people have had. So this question uh, from a woman, maybe, I don't know, 25 years old. She looks to be a Hispanic woman. If I had the honor, the privilege of talking to her, I would ask her a very simple question. I would say, ma'am, where do you think you don't have privilege? You. Like, I mean, not not Hillary Clinton. Forget about Hillary Clinton. Where do you think you, 25-year-old Hispanic woman in the United States of America in the year 2016, where do you think you don't have privilege? Privilege is relative, I suppose. You know, this woman somehow got invited or was allowed into this forum 
So she obviously has some connection to the system, right? I don't know if she's working for a, a political campaign or, or some activist group or something. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I just, some group, some activist group, uh, which is totally fine. But, but being involved in, in that, those of th- types of things is a privilege, a privilege that women have not had for most of our country's history. But I don't want to pretend that that's an American problem. For most of human history, women have had no say in politics. And let's not even stop there. For most of human history, there was no such thing as politics. It was, like, no one was involved in it. It was the king who set all the rules. It didn't matter if you're a woman or a man. You had no say whatsoever. I, I, I got to add a little dose of perspective here. And if I could talk to this woman, I, I would hope to add just a little bit of perspective. I'm not going to tell her she's wrong or anything. Just a little perspective. And appreciate the fact that a young Hispanic woman in the United States of America in the year 2016, you have more privilege than really anyone else in history. You just, you being involved in the political process as a 25 year old woman, you just that alone in all of human history, you have more privilege than anyone. You can, you can take any type of person at any time in, in the world, in any place in the world. And that woman who asked that question has more privilege than them. Name, name, a, name a, we'll take a guy in uh, name a country, uh, Russia uh, in uh, 1910. Okay. She has more privilege. Uh, let's go with a, uh, a male in uh, uh, South Africa in uh, 1942. Okay. That woman has more privilege. You, you do all you can go go. Uh, we'll take a guy in England in 1830. Like, like it doesn't matter. You go across the board. She, that girl has more privilege than anyone ever. Because if you're born or, or you're a guy and you're born in anywhere at any other time in history, you don't have the ability to question the crown. So this Hispanic woman in America has more say in the political process than any man in, in pretty much any time in world history. Let alone I mean history right now. If you're Hispanic, you have more influence. I'm going to call. I'm going to, I'm going to call it influence privilege. You have more influence privilege than almost every woman in Mexico, <laughs> right? That woman has more involvement in the political process here in America than she would have if she was 20 miles south of where I'm sitting right now. This hit me the other day. This is why I get it. I get frustrated at this. Questions like that. There's five values that, um, that we talk about most on this show. And we've come up with these five values. Um, and we didn't come up with them. We've, we've chosen these five to be the center point of our show because it's been a bunch of different studies that have proven these are the five values that contribute most to life satisfaction. So if you can live your life according to these five values, then you will be happy. Curiosity. Hope, zest, love, and gratitude. Curiosity, hope, zest, love, gratitude. And pretty much everything we talk about the show comes back to one of those five things. May not have noticed that, but that's how it works. If you're grateful, you can't have hate in your heart. If you're grateful, 
you can't be jealous. You can't have envy. It's impossible. Those two things can't, they, they can't coexist. Gratefulness is the light. Gratitude is a light. Envy, jealousy, hate is dark. If your gratitude, it is the, it is the medicine for all of those evils. And when people complain about other people's privilege, they're also saying that they themselves don't have privilege, which is a way of saying that they're ungrateful, right? Is, is, there, is there a logical fallacy that I'm, am I missing a step? or am I, if, if, if you're saying you have privilege, that means I don't have privilege. And you can only say that if you're ungrateful for what you have, right? No, maybe I'm missing something. I don't know. But, but this comes from the fact that I find it mind-boggling that anyone living in the United States of America in any income bracket of any nationality of any sexual orientation would not be grateful beyond all comprehension. So grateful that you would never even fathom asking a question like that. Now, I'm not saying that, that the, 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 we can't improve things or that things are perfect. It's certainly not. But if we want to improve things, it certainly doesn't happen by tearing down white people, forcing them to grovel and apologize. That's not how you lift up Hispanic people or whoever. How do you think Hillary answered that question? With a little bit of that? Do you think, do you think Hillary's answer had anything like that along those lines? Yeah, I don't think so. We'll take a break here. We'll come back and we'll play the, uh, play the next part. And I want to uh, bring it back to Kevin Hart. You know, Kevin Hart, he's like the comedian of the, of the day. He was on Howard Stern's show the other day and said something um, that I think is important. So we'll play Hillary's answer next with a little bit of Kevin Hart as well. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. This is Mike Slater. Hello, Slater. All right, so the question was... um, Hillary, where have you experienced your white privilege? Sit back and uh, enjoy this answer. Clip two. <laughs> I, uh, I think it is, it is hard when you're swimming in the ocean to know exactly what's happening around you so much as it is when you're standing on the shore perhaps watching. For me, you know, look, I was born white, middle class in the middle of America. I went to good public schools. I had a 
a very strong supportive family. Um, I had a lot of great um, experiences growing up. I went to a, a wonderful college. I went to law school. I never really um, knew what was or wasn't part of the privilege. I just knew that I was a lucky person and that being lucky was in part related to who I, who I am, uh, where I'm from, uh, and the opportunities I had. But I'll tell you when I first realized that I was privileged, both because I was white and because I was economically stable. I had two experiences. The first, and they both came through my church. The first, when I was about 11 years old, our church asked if some of us would volunteer to babysit for the children of migrant workers um, on Saturdays because... Mm -hmm. The families had to go into the fields and the older kids had to go with them. And there was nobody left to watch the little kids. And I and a couple of my friends volunteered. And I remember, you know, in those days, Chicago was surrounded by fields. Doesn't look like it anymore, but it was. And it was on the, the migrant journey from Mexico up through Texas, up through the Midwest, ended up in Michigan. But uh, at a certain point in the summer harvest, folks were in uh, the Chicago area. So I remember going out there, taking care of these adorable little kids. Um, and I kind of thought, well, you know, they're very different from me. I mean, they've got different experiences, but they were just little kids. And then at the end of the day, at the end of this long road, because there are all these sort of housing units, at the end of this long road, the bus stopped, and the parents and the older brothers and sisters got out. And when the little kids saw them, they just dropped everything and began running for their mothers and their fathers, holding their arms out. And I remember it like it was yesterday watching that, and I was thinking, I used to do that with my father. And I'm watching these kids and their families, they have to work so hard. And the place they live is not very nice. And I just felt, you know, I have a different kind of life. I didn't call it. A, a particular name, but it was a different life, and I knew that. Well, I, okay, uh, one eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. There's so much to to parse with that. Um, we all live different lives. That's <laughs> point number one. Uh, but there's an there's an important common factor uh, throughout her story and all people who live a uh, quality life. And she mentioned it. It's a nice little story there about helping volunteer baby kid baby uh, kids or whatever. Um, but listen to why she said she was privileged. She said she had a good education and a good family. Her exact words were, I went to a good public school and I had a strong, supportive family. What is it we say all the time on this show that the key to success in America is? What is it? What's the key to success in America? Or let me flip it around. We say all the time, the source of nearly every problem in America is what? Every problem in America, you can source it back to what? Lack of education, and lack of a strong, supportive family, which leads to gangs, drugs, violence, crime, lower incomes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you need education and strong families. If you have that of any race, you'll be way more than fine. You'll be one of the most blessed people who have ever graced the face of this planet living in the United States of America. But that's what she, that's her privilege. She's apologizing because she lived in a, uh, she got a good education and has a strong, supportive family.
So Kevin Hart, he's the comedian of, of the era right now. He was on Howard Stern's show the other day. His dad was a drug addict. Didn't see much of him growing up. I, I want to read this right here. This is what Kevin Hart said the other day. He said, from ages two through eight, my dad did what he could before his addiction got out of hand and he disappeared. The way I see it is things happen for a reason. If my dad hadn't been around and didn't do drugs, I may be handling my success differently. I may be on drugs. I may be searching for something. He keeps on. He says, my mom, my mom was such a strong woman. She said, look, regardless of whatever your father's doing and where he is, I have a job to do raising you and you're going to do what you're supposed to do and you're going to grow up and be two intelligent men, me and my brother. Quote, school was of the importance. And then with our neighborhood, it wasn't a good neighborhood. She kept me off the streets. I applaud my mother. So there you have it. Kevin Hart, whose dad was a drug addict, which means he should be a drug addict too, right? Went on to live a successful life. And I don't mean successful as in he's making millions of dollars and, uh, and all that. I mean successful as in he's not also a drug, addicted to drugs and he's not also an absent dad. How did he do it? Education. That's what he said. School was of the importance. And as stable of a family as possible. A strong mom. There's no secret to success. I mean, or a secret as in like, like it's not hidden. It's, not, it's right there. Education and a supportive family. And here's the thing. If you have a good education and you have a strong supportive family and you happen to be white... Nothing to apologize for. Nothing to apologize for. Don't buy into it. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater, show the blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. Um, I should probably save this discussion until next week, until after I actually see the movie, but uh, I want to chat about it for a second to hopefully encourage you to see it, as if you don't want to already. 13 hours. Um, I think it's an incredibly important movie, A, to pay tribute to the four Americans who were killed and also the uh, Americans who tried to save their lives. And also I think it, uh, more than anything else, has a chance to really hurt Hillary Clinton's chances of becoming president because you know we get stuck in this echo chamber and we think we think everyone knows what we know because we know it so why doesn't everyone know, right like so of course you know what happened to Benghazi you know all about Benghazi you've watched the hearing you've done this you've followed up on this you've read that book maybe um no one no one knows what Benghazi is <laughs> like I, I, the next 10 people you see today ask them what Benghazi is and maybe maybe three people will have heard of it and maybe you'll find one person who can tell you anything about it. No one will be able to point to it on a map. So like no one, no one knows what it is. So this movie is going to take the word Benghazi and and just shatter the echo chamber that it currently uh, exists in and get it out into pop culture. And people are going to leave the theater asking a lot of questions. Now Hillary's not in the movie. And I don't even think she's alluded to in the movie, but people are going to leave wondering who are these people? Like who, who are the higher ups who ordered the stand down? Who, who are they? You know, the answer It's gonna be a lot of questions like that. I'm really excited for this movie. Uh, I'm going to watch it tonight. I hope you do too. Uh, I want to play this clip here. Um, this is from Megan Kelly the other day. There are two guys in the clip. It's Charles and Jeremiah Woods. 
They are the dad and brother of Tyrone Woods. Ty is his name. He lives actually, uh, or lived um, 15 miles south of uh, where I'm sitting right now. He owned a uh, a bar, the Salty Frog Bar. He had three kids. He's buried at the, uh, it's called Rosecrans Cemetery, maybe 30, 30 minutes from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, so those are the two guys. Pat Smith is also in this clip. She is the mom of Sean Smith. He went to Mission Valley High School in San Diego, which is three miles from where I'm sitting right now. Graduated in 1995, six years in the Air Force. He has two kids. His mom, Pat, is on Fox News from time to time, and every time it just breaks my heart because she is a uh, she is a grieving mom. And the wounds are are still very fresh for her because she, she's, she hasn't had any closure yet. She hasn't had closure because she doesn't know what, what happened or, or why it happened that way and why Hillary Clinton would lie to her face. And she, she, can't, she can't get closure. And every time she's on TV, she, it just it breaks my heart. It's, um, it's amazing. Um, all right, I want to play this clip. It's longer, but I think it's really good. So here are all three of those uh, family members of the Benghazi victims, or three of the family members on the, of the Benghazi victims, uh, on Megyn Kelly the other day. First, I know you were all at the premiere last night. Your reaction to it, Charles? Well, <clears throat> from the very beginning, I felt like probably anyone else that lost a loved one. You want to be there at the moment that they die. You want to be at their side. You want to know what they were going through. And I had always wanted to talk with one of the men that was with Ty. I was able to do that both before and after the premiere. And I really wasn't ready for what I saw on the screen. Um, I'd read the book. I thought I was prepared. But when I actually saw my son's life being taken from him, it was very emotional. Uh, uh, the entire family, there was four of us there. We were all in tears. We were hugging each other, sobbing. It was almost like I didn't want to be there, but I'm glad that I had the experience. It did add to the, the healing process. Yeah, the healing process, the closure, mm-hmm. and it was positive, but very powerful because this is what really happened. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors that have gone out from both the left side and the right side, but. These, these men that were with Ty, they were telling the truth. This is what actually happened. Make no mistake about it. When you see the movie, 13 Hours, you will see that Tyrone Woods emerges as an incredible hero who rallied those men and did everything in his power to try to override the orders they were being given to stand down and not go help the ambassador at the consulate. But they went. They just went too late because they were told not to. And finally, you'll see in the movie what he did. When you saw that, Jeremiah, when you see your brother depicted in the heroism that he showed and how and the love that the other guys felt for him, what was it like for you? It was unbelievably touching. Um, like, like my father said, the, in the movie, you could absolutely tell that there was the touch of people who were actually there on the ground. You could see that their input was 100 um, percent 
taken by Michael Bay and the actors who were um, portraying it. And, and we uh, have footage of that, of the behind-the-scenes guys, the real guys, you know, uh, Tonto and Oz and Tig telling Michael Bay, this is how it was done, this is how it went down. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it was uh, Oz, I believe, we were talking after the premiere, and he was saying, um, when Michael Bay was signed on for the movie, he um, essentially said, if you don't get this right, I'll be... Uh, I'll be uh, waterboarding you, essentially, you know, uh, only slightly <laughs> Oz, just who, on the who was very close with Ty, yeah. mm-hmm. and we, ha- we have a picture of him visiting Ty's grave. I mean, he, his death took its toll uh, mm-hmm. on you and on, and on the men who served with him. This is that picture here. We interviewed Oz and the other two guys not long ago. I want, I want to ask Pat, because I know you were there, and my heart goes out to you as a mother. I, I know how difficult it must have been for you, and you were not able to stay throughout the whole movie. I left as soon as Sean came on screen, or the person that portrayed him. I couldn't handle it. Hillary's a liar. I know what she told me. Oh, Pat. I know it must be so hard. I, I, uh, so many people want to want to put this behind them and say, Hillary sat there and she testified. She testified for her own 13 hours, and they 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 say it's done. They say there's no story about Benghazi and that she did everything she could do through the fog of war. And and she came right out and said she is not lying, suggesting you are the one who is lying about what happened at that Air Force base. Bull feathers. That's just plain old bull. I know what she said. And not only did she say it. But Obama said the same thing to me, and Panetta, and Biden, and and Susan Rice. I went up to all of them, begging them to tell me what happened. And they, they all said that it was the video, mm-hmm. every one of them. What's incredible, Charles, is you have contemporaneous notes. I mean, in a court of law, this is admissible, if you, if you, if you were at that point, where you, you wrote down what she said. We are going to have the filmmaker arrested who was responsible for the death of my son. That's what you said at the time. And when I interviewed Oz and Tig and Tonto, their first response was, who has motive to lie? Is it Mr. Woods? Is it Pat Smith? Is it Kate Quigley? Why do you think she, she said what we she can, said uh, about we, when they said somebody's lying? She said, we, we know exactly why she said it because it was uh, a couple weeks before the election and the whole election was framed as uh, Bin Laden's dead, GM alive, and Al-Qaeda's on the run. So, of course, you can't come out and talk about how Al-Qaeda did this on the anniversary of 9-11. It was about a movie brushed under the rug. Hopefully people forget it ever happened. That's why. Um, those family members, right? Have, did you ever see American Sniper? You have to see it if you haven't. It's amazing. I'll never forget the end of that movie. Silence. I, I don't mean the movie. I'm sorry, maybe not even the end of the movie. Like what happened after the movie was over? Absolute silence. So... When I watch a movie, it doesn't matter what movie, any movie, when it's done, I like to sit there for a while. I like to sit there for a while, take it in. Usually the music is playing. You watch a couple of the, um, the credits or whatever. You just sit there, take it in uh, for just a couple minutes. My wife, pff, up. Like, movie's over, boom, done, go. Like, she's gone. She's out of there. I was like, what, 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 what's the rush? Like, sit down for a second, enjoy uh, the, 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 and like, take it in. Let the movie wash over you. Uh, so every movie, she's like, gone. And and I was like, ah, I'll just, I'll meet you up front. 
not American Sniper. No one moved when American Sniper was over. No one moved. And I remember saying, and you may remember my review, I guess it was a year ago. Um, American Sniper, it was as if you went to the theater and you said, I want to know what war is like. I want to know what it's like to be a Navy SEAL. I want to know what combat is like. I want to know what being in the military is like. Show me what it's like. And you go to the theater and the director says, Open, uh, show me your hand. Open up your hand. And they say, all right, get, let, put it in my hand. Put, put in my hand what war is like. And the director puts a grain of sand. A grain of sand right in the palm of your hand. And you look at that and you say, no, I, come on. Get, lay it on. I want to know, know what all, I want to I know the fullness of what war is like. Lay it on me. I'm ready for it. And the director said, no, 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 no. This is what you can handle. If the beach, if an entire beach is what war is really like, of what combat is like, what being a seal is like, what the life of Chris Kyle was like, this grain of sand is all I can handle. And a grain of sand was given to every single person in in the audience. And they sat down and they watched a movie for two hours and it rocked them to their core to the point where the movie ended and no one could move. No one could move. And all we got was a grain of sand of what the real experience was like. That was American Sniper. I haven't, I haven't seen this movie. Obviously 13 hours. We're going tonight. Um, but I imagine it's a grain of sand of what it was really like. But in the end, it'll be just as powerful. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. If you've seen it, I'd love to get your thoughts. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. So I took the unpopular opinion this week on my local show that um, you really, really, really don't want to win the lottery. That, that Powerball jackpot, the $1.5 billion, you, you don't want you don't want that. <laughs> um, I mean, we've heard by now that 70% of people who win those jackpots go broke. 70%. But not only do they go broke, they lose their hundreds of millions of dollars, but every relationship they have is destroyed. Their families are destroyed. Um, I read one story of a, a guy. He was already a millionaire. He was the president of a con, uh, construction company. And a couple months later, he got $500,000 stolen out of his car when he was passed out um, in the car outside of a strip club. His, uh, there was another family with their two kids got uh, hooked on drugs, died of overdoses because of the millions that they had. It, it's, you don't want it. And I know everyone's thinking, ah, that's never, that wouldn't be me. Mark Cuban said, he had some advice to the Powerball winner. He said, if you weren't happy yesterday, you won't be happy tomorrow. It would destroy every relationship you have. It's not worth it. Now, the good news is you didn't win, so 
it's fine now. But, <laughs> but if you, if you lusted or dreamed after winning 1.5 billion, which in the end ended up being about 190 million, the winners got, um, that's fine. But take another minute and think about all the terrible things that would happen when you win that money. People coming to you asking for money. You saying no. Family's ripped apart. It's all, it's brutal. It's awful. You don't want it. And I was thinking about that, and I was like, oh, maybe we could talk about that for a minute or two. But then I was like, well, no, I'd rather talk about, um, you know, thirteen hours in the movie. And they're actually kind of connected because it's weird. All the people who want to win the lottery really shouldn't win the lottery. Do you remember the movie? Um, gladiator and there's a scene in gladiator where caesar says to maximus russell crowe he says i want you to be the protector of rome like i want you to take over for me i want you to be the protector of rome and maximus thinks about it and he says with all my heart no right i want you to be the the leader of of rome and the roman empire and he's and and, and uh, maximus says with all my heart no And that's when Caesar says, and that is why it must be you because you don't want it. It must be you. You must be the person to lead Rome because you're the one who doesn't want it. And you understand how difficult it's going to be. That's why you have to be the guy. That interesting. The people who want to win the lottery so badly, they're they're probably the the people who should like like really shouldn't win (laughs) it. And, and here, in, you know, people who really understand the gravity of things like this and don't want to take over this leadership role because they understand how difficult it's going to be and, and all that stuff, um, they're the ones who should take it more than anyone. Isn't that fascinating? So I don't think about that when you watch 13 Hours this weekend. Hope we inspired you to carve out a couple hours, 15 bucks. And uh, think about that. Think of these men portrayed. And I haven't seen it, so I don't know how they're portrayed. But think of... I have a feeling that they're going to be the perfect men to have been in that situation because they understand how they understood, they understood everything that was about it. Everything that came with what they were having to do. And they probably deep down didn't want to do it, but they know they knew that they had to. I don't know. Just something to think about um, when you're watching the movie with all my heart. No, Maximus, that is why it must be you. Talk a little bit about the debate. New York Values coming up next. Mike Slater Show. Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. America's the greatest country in the world. Slater, Slater, how are you? Happy Saturday. Hope you're having a great weekend so far. Hope you can find some time to watch 13 hours, as we talked about in the last hour. Um, But either way, I appreciate you taking a couple minutes here. So coming up next, want to break down the back and forth between Cruz and Trump on uh, Cruz's eligibility. It is a, a masterful volley between the two of them. And just so you know, as, as we analyze the debate, I think we do it a little different than anyone else has. Uh, most people analyze the politics of it here and there and, and maybe who won or whatever. Um, I want to look at it from 
sort of a, a super nerdy perspective, like from a from a debate class 101 or debate team 101 perspective, because a lot of people are saying, oh, this guy won this exchange or he won that round. But why? Like, why did what Donald Trump said resonate? Why did it work? Why did what Cruz said? Why did that? Why was that so impactful? Why did people watching that say, you say, oh, that was great or whatever. You know, the, the Luntz focus groups when they have these dials and they move the dial up or down when the people are talking or whatever. Why are they moving them up and down? We know they are, but why? That's sort of how I want to analyze it. If that's all right here. Um, so right now, though, I want to talk about the New York Values Exchange. Really fascinating, really interesting. Um, and I know Cruz is kicking himself about it. So Ted Cruz, and we've mentioned this many times, Ted Cruz is brilliant. Arguably the smartest person ever to run for president. Certainly in the modern era. Uh, just objectively off the charts brilliant. We've talked about Alan Dershowitz, far left law, Harvard law professor said, out of the 10,000 students he's had over 50 years, Ted Cruz is among the brightest. His, his words, off the charts brilliant. Ted Cruz, I'll, I'll never forget this. It was about a year ago. He wrote a law review, like a law article in the Harvard Law Journal just because. like, (laughs) There's no fanfare to it, and it was super nerdy and way over the top, and it didn't, like, no one in the normal mass media read it or saw it or noticed it, but he just, he's just brilliant. And all of his answers are, are masterfully crafted. And he, he's just, you know, he's been on the debate teams his whole life. So he's just so good at this. Now, Donald Trump is not good at debates when there's a lot of people. But on one-on-one exchanges, he's as good as they get. Now, he doesn't have Cruz's formal debate training. But he has, you know, just a lifetime of being a, a savvy, tough businessman. Um, it, it is, I think an analogy that I think is appropriate is it's Rocky versus Drago. Right, Cruz is Drago. He's a trained, expertly trained, Harvard Law, book smart, brilliant, just like a machine. And Trump is Rocky. Right? Learned how it all works on the streets, in the boardroom, making scrappy deals, learning how it works along the way. Street smarts. And those are always the most fun battles, those, those two uh, going against each other. Those types of people going against each other. Um, so let's talk about... Um, the New York values. Now, let me make, sorry, let me make one more disclaimer. I think these debates have very little to do, if not, maybe even nothing to do with who will be the best president. Carson is terrible at these debates. That does not mean he'll be a bad president. Ted Cruz is brilliant at these debates. That doesn't mean he'll be a good president. The skill sets in a debate are arguably never used when you're president. I don't, I can't imagine a scenario where they would be. It's sort of like when you take the SAT, like, does that really determine if you're going to be successful in life? Does that really determine if you're college material, if you're good at verbal analogies, if you're good at, 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 at analogy, like a microphone is to radio as steering wheel is to what? And like, like, all right, so I'm good at those and you're bad at those. I get into college, you don't get into college. I mean, like that, that's ridiculous because I, when I get into college, I'm never going to do a verbal analogy again, like in the SAT. It's just, it's silly, but that's how we've determined 
you should get into school. And it's the same thing with this. Like these debates are very silly when you're using them to determine who's going to be the best president. The skill sets don't line up at all, but that's how we do it. So um, if that's how we do it, let's analyze it. So uh, I think you've heard it a million times. So I just want to play the first couple seconds and then the last couple seconds of this New York values exchange um, because, again, you've heard it so many times. Let's play a clip by 96. This is the very beginning of this uh, this exchange. Just to jog your memory here. Senator Cruz, you suggested Mr. Trump, quote, embodies New York values. Could you explain what you mean by that? You know, I think most people know exactly what New York values are. I am from New York. I well, 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 you're from New York, so yeah. you might not. But I promise you in the state of South Carolina, they do. Okay, so that's, that's quick, that's brilliant, that's sharp. It's just perfect. So Ted Cruz, because of that, got on this high-energy, punchy, jabby exchange or, or a little rant about New York values versus uh, you know, mainstream conservative values or something like that, right? Uh, pro-abortion, pro-gay marriage, all that kind of stuff. And just sort of throwing these jabs at New York City and New York values. Now, that would play, and I'm sure has played, brilliant in Iowa. The problem is Ted Cruz wasn't in Iowa. He was in South Carolina. Now, I think it would play well in South Carolina as well, but he wasn't just in South Carolina. It was on national television. And he forgot to take himself out of Iowa stump speech mode. And because it started off so good and he was rolling the whole debate, um, he, he, I think he lost himself. And, and I guarantee you he was kicking himself later that night. He's like, why did I say that? Why I set myself up for this? I set, so you're thinking set myself up for what? This. <laughs> I want to play the response from Donald Trump. So as you listen to this, because you've heard it a million times. So you know what he says. You know the words he says. But this time I want you to listen to his voice, his tone of voice. How he lowers his voice. Donald Trump talks slower here. He talks in complete sentences. Think about that. Um, a lot of people have talked about Donald Trump's speech pattern before. It's short. It's choppy. Uh, he's bouncing around. People think that he's not smart when, when he talks like that. They think he's uh, talking to a, like at a third grade level, but no, no, no. There's a method to what he's doing. His speaking style matches his quick common sense strength. He uses quick, strong, powerful words because that's his brand. Now you can contrast that to Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio chooses soaring, smooth rhetoric because that's his brand. Trump's speech is strong, powerful, staccato. I don't want to get too much in the weeds of logistics, but um, your voice box is a, is, a, is a musical instrument. It's a musical instrument. So imagine it like a violin. Rubio plays these long, beautiful notes on his violin, smooth, soaring. There's a rhyme. There's a rhythm. There's a meter. Every speech he gives, and, and, and in the debate the other night, right? There's, there's a rhythm to it. Um, it it's, it's Martin Luther King Jr.-esque, soaring rhetoric. Trump plays the violin too. But he plays staccato notes, short, quick, sharp. He plucks the strings of his instrument. And again, the left hears that and they think he's playing like a third grader, but he's not. He's just playing his musical instrument differently. Now, 
Does that make sense? So the best symphonies have all the styles in it, right? You take a symphony, part of it will be soft. The other part will be loud and forceful and powerful. Part of it will be really fast. Some of it will be really slow. Some smooth, some staccato like this. Mix it up. Keeps people on your toes. Those are the best symphonies. Now Trump, this entire campaign, mostly staccato, mostly short, quick, sharp, fast, powerful, strong. But every once in a while, he'll talk like this. So pay attention not only to what he's saying, but how he's saying it. Clip 99. Are you sure about that? Maria. So conservatives actually do come out of Manhattan, including William F. Buckley and others, just so you understand. And just so if I could, because he insulted a lot of people, I've had more calls on that statement that Ted made. That New York is a great place. It's got great people. It's got loving people, wonderful people. When the World Trade Center came down, I saw something that no place on earth could have handled more beautifully, more humanely than New York. You had two 100... You had two 110-story buildings come crashing down. I saw them come down. Thousands of people killed. And the cleanup started the next day, and it was the most horrific cleanup probably in the history of doing this and in construction. I was down there, and I've never seen anything like it. And the people in New York fought and fought and fought, and we saw more death and even the smell of death Nobody understood it. And it was with us for months, the smell, the air. And we rebuilt downtown Manhattan. And everybody in the world watched. And everybody in the world loved New York and loved New Yorkers. And I have to tell you, that was a very insulting statement that Ted made. Style. When's the last time you heard Trump give a speech where he has a couple consecutive complete sentences. I don't mean that as an insult because everything he's doing is calculated and purposeful. Um, the way he never seemingly completes his sentences. So have you ever heard him really give a couple strong, long sentences like that? No, but he did right there and you can't see it, but not only was Ted Cruz applauding Donald Trump, which I've never seen in my entire life. I've never seen in a debate where one person makes a point, the other person makes the counterpoint, and the first person applauds him. <laughs> right? I heard someone say that uh, Trump got Cruz uh, clapping like a trained seal. But forget about that. What you can't see is that when Trump was doing this, it was a split screen, and Ted Cruz looked over at Trump, and I, I can't, I nodded his head, did a simple, single head nod, and closed his eye like a, like basically Ted Cruz said, well done. It, it was a combination of you're right. Well done. You win that you win that round. It was, it was that kind of movie. Like, it was a master complimenting the challenger. Very good. Excellent job. there. That, that's what, that's what that look was. If you go back and you see it again, if you, if you do get the chance to see that exchange, look at Ted Cruz the whole time. And when it ends, he goes, very good. (laughs) 
The style there is huge. And now, and the reason uh, Cruz couldn't come back is because Trump completely changed the energy in the room. Cruz, at first, when he was doing his quick, punchy, you know, New York values, we all know what that means, blah, blah, blah. Like, everyone's, ah, ha, ha, that's funny. Like, the energy was way up here, and Trump's just cut it and went way down here. And there's no way that Cruz could come back to it, come back from it. Now, you can take that for what you'd like. That's just, again, that's inside, you know, debate talk. You know, again, debate... Debating should have nothing to do with whether or not you're a good or bad president. But um, if we're going to look at how the debates, how to debate, uh, Trump certainly won that round. And that's why. Now, the bigger point here is that everyone knew that Cruz wasn't talking about 9-11 first responders. And he wasn't talking about New Yorkers and how they respond to tragedies, whether it's 9-11 or Hurricane Sandy or whatever. He was talking about the fact that New Yorkers elect socialists Bill de Blasio to mayor with 73% of the vote. And the last mayor that they had, Bloomberg, was the guy who wanted to ban salt and trans fats and change building codes to put elevators in inconvenient parts of the building to get people to take the stairs. So idiotic stuff coming from mayors of New York elected by the people of New York. So we all know what Cruz was talking about. But change the air, change the, the energy of the room like that. Uh, Cruz took that one. Excuse me, Trump took that one. One eight hundred seven. Excuse me, one eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. I want to come back and and because I know Cruz was kicking himself about this. Um, so I want to come back with with what Cruz last night or two nights ago was sa- was wishing he said. Right? I know I can imagine him laying in bed thinking, God, why didn't I say this? Why didn't I put it like this? Why did I? Why did I set him up like that? I gave him a softball. What was I thinking? We'll tell you what he what he wishes he said instead next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. So I was thinking the other day of how, how Cruz could have handled that moment differently. I don't think he got out of Iowa mode when he's talking about New York values. That's a great speech to make in Iowa. Uh, it's a great speech to make in South Carolina. It's just not a great point to make when you're in a nationally televised debate in South Carolina. Uh, not you know, There's a couple places that are safe spaces to make fun of New York, uh, but not on a national debate stage. And I think he got wrapped up and he's kicking himself about it now. You think of it like, imagine you're a pitcher in Major League. You get a scouting report on every batter, right, on where you should pitch it to them and where you shouldn't. Bryce Harper last year, he went one for 17 at the beginning of last year. There was a stretch last year. He's one for 17. And then he hit five home runs in two games. All the home runs were low and outside. So don't pitch it low and outside to Bryce Harper. Debating is the exact same thing. Each candidate has their strong suits and their weaknesses. Don't pitch softballs to their strong suits. Debating is like chess. Not only do you have to give your answer, but you have to think about what answer they're going to give in response to your answer. And if they're going to give a good response to your answer, then you have to change your answer. 
so that they can't give a good response. And Ted Cruz knows this. He's a fantastic debater, one of the best, classically trained in this art form. And he should have known what Trump was going to do. So I was thinking the other day how he could have uh, preempted it. That's the key. You have to preempt it. So this is what, what, what I would have done. And I think what Cruz uh, wishes he would have done, something like this. Uh, it would go, uh, it'd start off the same, right? He'd say, oh, yeah, New York values. You all know what I mean by New York values. 73% of the people vote for de Blasio, blah, 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 blah. New York is socially liberal, pro-abortion, pro-gay marriage. I do the whole Donald Trump line uh, from that Russert interview, which was great. Right where where Trump said, uh, "Hey, look, I'm from New York. This is what we believe in New York. These aren't Iowa values; these are New York values." Right? I'd play that line perfectly. But Trump, I think, or, or excuse me, Cruz, I think he should have said something like this: "Say, you know, so we all know what I mean by New York values. But New Yorkers also have American values, the same values that I grew up with in Texas." And everyone in this audience grew up within South Carolina and people in Iowa and Florida have and everywhere else, these great American values that we all share. Taking care of our neighbor, giving to charity, finding the best in people, working hard to make a better life for your children. The people of New York, they also have those values. And you saw it on full force in 9-11, not to mention every day since then. Right? So, so preempt 9-11. He knew that Donald Trump was going to bring up 9-11. So you have to bring it up first. And then you go on, you, you go deeper and you say, what I want to do as president, I want to tap into those great American values that we all share. Now I'm making this scenario up and I'm sure Cruz has been in a situation like this. You say something like, you know, I was talking to someone from New York the other day. He was a firefighter on 9-11. And he was telling me about that day and how he wasn't supposed to work that day, but he got the call and he left his wife and his children in their home and he ran to the fire station and drove to the towers. But on the way, the first tower fell down. And he told me that every day he regrets not getting there sooner. And I'm thinking, man, this guy's incredible. He's a great New Yorker and a great American who regrets not being able to, to die trying to rescue his neighbor. Those are great American values. And real New York values. But the values I'm talking about are these political values that for whatever reason take over New York City during election time. No, no. I want to go deeper than that. I want to talk about inherent American values that we all have in common, that we're all guided by. And I don't know why many conservatives don't come out of New York. But a lot of them come out of Texas. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider percentage. Thanks for being here. Uh, we're talking about uh, the, uh, the exchange of the debate between uh, Cruz and Trump about New York values. I think tr- Trump came out on top because he didn't talk about New York values. He tapped into American values. And obviously that'll win uh, every time. Uh, I want to go to Patton, who's in Indiana right now. What's going on, Patton? How are you? Hey, Pat, can you hear me? Yep, yep, I hear hey, you. Beautiful. How are you, man? Pretty good, pretty good. good. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks. 
Thank you for calling. So what's on your mind? What do you think about that exchange there? Well, I mean, I kind of agree with you that, that Cruz could have probably, you know, you know, come back a little, a little better comeback. But I just kind of think it's kind of funny that, you know, Trump is supposed to be, you know, this guy who's not politically correct, but yet when somebody attacks New York, you know, he goes all 9-11 on everybody when... I'm pretty sure that he, Cruz, articulated his, you know, enough to know that he obviously wasn't talking about 9-11. And, oh, certainly. And, you know, if you know, I was just telling you, the producer, you know, if you go, you know, if you listen to, like I heard, you know, Andrew Wilkow and David Webb, they were, you know, they're from New York, for one. Um, they were kind of agreeing with Trump that he won that exchange. But, you know, I just, if you go on social media and you read comments and, and a lot of them, seemed to me like most people understood what Cruz meant and, and that they sided with him and that New York elects a communist as their mayor, for one. But, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a Cruz supporter, so I'm a little bit biased, but I just kind of thought that him going 9-11 kind of made him look a little bit weak. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Pat, I appreciate the call, man. Thank you for calling. So I, I've heard yeah, this. Thank uh, thanks, man. Thanks for listening. Um, I totally see what you're saying. Uh, you know, this is his... Uh, I don't know if you, if you listen, I'm very sensitive to people, politicians bringing up nine 11. Right. So I have, I definitely like a red flag goes up whenever that happens. And I, I, I listen really carefully to see where their heart is when they're, when they're saying this. Um, so red flags went up. I don't think he was being PC as much as loyal, right? He, he didn't go PC. He went loyal. And I don't think he went weak because the values he was talking about were, were rebuilding and, and restoration and, and restoring, right? Which isn't, there's nothing weak about that. So I don't think he was PC and weak as much as loyal and strong in the end. Now, this is where I, I issued that disclaimer earlier and I should again. Debating has nothing to do with being a good president. Nothing, nothing at all. There is no doubt that Donald Trump knew exactly what Ted Cruz was talking about. I think everyone knew what Ted Cruz was talking about. Talking about political values, electing comrade de Blasio and the rest, right? Everyone knows exactly what he meant. But what do you want Cruz? I mean, what do you want Trump to do? Be like, yeah, you're right. We elected a crazy mayor. I mean, no, no, of course he's going to come back with something. And he was able to flip it and turn it around uh, on Cruz to the point where, again, Cruz at the end was clapping, applauding Trump's response. So Trump obviously knew what he was talking about. I think everyone knew what Cruz was talking about. But um, I think to come back with 9-11 in that situation, I, I, think, tr- I think Trump was right. I hope that makes sense. Um, you know, it's interesting you bring up Trump being weak or showing a sign of weakness with his answer because the entire Trump campaign is based off of strength, right? That's what it is, being strong. Um, and everyone else is some variation of weak, whether they're low energy or um, nice. Ben Carson is nice. Jeb Bush, of course, low energy. Uh, Hillary Clinton lacks stamina. Those are all different ways to say weak. And Trump is strong and builds things. And, and ISIS is scared of me and stuff like, stuff like that. All right, so the entire debate for the entire... Uh, uh, campaign for him is strong versus weak. I want to play a clip here. 
of Donald Trump. Listen to this two-minute riff that he did at a, uh, at a rally. And don't listen to it as a Trump supporter or a Trump hater. Okay, so take, take off your political glasses um, and, and just observe this from an objective position. Just pretend you're an alien from outer space and you're coming in and, and watching this uh, that speech person. Give, this person give a speech on a topic, right? So don't look at it as I disagree with his policies or whatever. So I I'm want to play this game sorry, one, one, more, one more disclaimer. I'm sorry. Um, right before this, he was talking about Iraq. So the context here is important. So the media will say stuff like, oh, Donald Trump, look how scatterbrained he is. He goes right from Iraq to the NFL. What a knucklehead. Now, he does that on purpose. He does it on purpose. He knows exactly what he's doing. So what he said before this clip, he says he's talking about Iraq. And then he goes, uh, you know, it's Sunday. Who the heck wants to watch these crummy games? I just wait to watch to the end. By the way, okay, well, let me go there for a second. Let me end the story. So we gave them Iraq. We're stupid. We're stupid. I'll change things. Believe me, I'll change things. And again, we're going to be respected. I don't want to use the word feared, but you know. So what I just said about a game. So I'm watching a game yesterday. That's where it picks up. So I'm watching a game yesterday. What used to be considered a great tackle, a violent, head-on-head violent if that was done by Dick Butkus, it'd say he's the greatest player. If that were done by Lawrence Taylor, it was done by Lawrence Taylor and Dick Butkus. And Ray Nitschke, right? Ray Nitschke. Used to see these tackles, and it was incredible to watch, right? Now they tackle. Oh, head-on-head collision. 15-yard. The whole game is all screwed up. You say, wow, what a tackle. Bing, flag. Football's become soft. Football has become soft. Now, I'll be criticized for that. They'll say, oh, isn't that terrible? But football's become soft like our country has become soft. It's true. There it is. It's true. The outcome of games have been changed by what used to be phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. Now, these are rough guys. These are rough guys. These guys, what they're doing is incredible. But I looked at it, and I watched yesterday in particular. So many, right? So many flags. And I can imagine a guy like uh, Lawrence Taylor and, and Dick Butkus, who was really rough, and some of these guys sitting there watching. Wow, what a beautiful tackle. 15 yards, that's the game is over. You can't kick a field goal anymore. It's become weak. And you know what? It's going to affect the NFL. Who I don't even watch it as much anymore. It's going to affect the NFL. I don't watch it. The, the referees, they want to all throw flags so their wife sees them at home. Oh, there's my husband. It's true. He just broke up. He just gave a 15-yard penalty on one of the most beautiful tackles made this year. Right? I mean, I don't need, it's boring. But although I love Tom Brady, I got to tell you, I do love Tom. He's a great guy. But, but it's a different, you know, it's different. But it's become soft and our country's become soft. So he's not just complaining about football for no reason. A lot of people hear that and they're like, why is he talking about the NFL? That's crazy. What a nut. No, he's using it as an illustration for our country has become soft. Why? Because he is the warrior alpha male candidate. He's the candidate that when things get dangerous, you turn to him. When you want to go kill the bad guy, you turn to him. When you want to be respected by the enemy, you go to him. When he was putting that uh, that ISIS video the other day, I guess it was it wasn't ISIS; it was another terrorist group, but same idea. He said, "Of course, I, I, they put me in the recruitment video. They fear me. 
They're scared of me. They should be. I'm going to go kill them. Bill Clinton, he said Bill Clinton was in an ISIS video a couple years back, but in that video, they portrayed him as a degenerate, the degenerate that he is, and they think Hillary Clinton is weak. She lacks stamina, right? Everything is strong and weak. And here he is talking about how our country's gone weak. It's gone soft. Do you want to live in a weak country? Do you want to live in a, in a, in a soft country? That is such a brilliant piece of showmanship right there. Almost subliminal. You know, we're not going to have time to talk about it today, but um, on my local, sh- local show a couple days ago, we talked about the, um, the power of laughter. Because Mark Stein went to his rally, Trump's rally in uh, Vermont. And... There's more and more reviews coming out of these rallies and how funny they are. It's just a 90-minute stand-up routine. Now, again, I've been saying all day that uh, debating, there's no skill set of debating, right, Like that goes into the presidency. Like We shouldn't determine who the president should be based off who's good at giving these, in these goofy debates. And I'm not saying that we should elect a president based off of who can give the best 90-minute stand-up routine. Please don't get me wrong. But making people laugh is a powerful, powerful force. When you laugh, it lowers your blood pressure. Your body creates more white blood cells, so it makes you healthier. When you laugh, you release dopamine. That's what makes you feel good. Chemicals in your brain. Um, it increases blood flow and oxygen flow in your body. And, and everyone who goes to a Trump rally, they talk about how much fun it is. It's a laugh fest. People talk about how he has just this, this, this inherent comedic timing, and it's just a, it's a good time. He's funny. So he, he's using humor and these these uh powerful framing words weak and strong as i said it's almost subliminal do you want to be weak do you want to live in a weak country do you personally do you want to be soft do you want someone to describe you as soft i mean that's what he's saying and then presents himself as the alpha warrior male leader who people have turned to for thousands of years people turn to the strong alpha warrior male And I'm not saying I want this. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I want him to win. But I believe because of this, because of our inherent primal desire to turn to a warrior alpha male, especially when there's foreign policy, uh, foreign threats to us, just our inherent human desire to turn to the warrior alpha male, I believe Trump will win the uh, nomination and the presidency. It's my prediction. not saying I want it. That's my prediction. Because it's a powerful, powerful force. 1-888-900-3393, one 900 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. I don't think so. Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. All right, we'll give one last uh, debate tip here. Again, we've been chatting about uh, the debate from a little different perspective, sort of a debate class perspective. Um, I don't know why. It's kind of a nerdy way of looking at it, but maybe that's my protest that I think these debates are all kind of goofy in the sense that they nothing to do with whether or not you're going to be a good president or not. So I don't know why we put so much emphasis on them. Anyway, um, John Kasich. So... I don't know what he's doing there. I, I've never met someone who supports John Kasich, so I don't 
I don't know how he keeps getting up on the stage every time, but the second question of the debate went to him and it was about the economy. Do you want to know why they asked him the second question, by the way? I guarantee you they asked him so that because every other debate, they'd ask him like the 10th question because he's, no one knows why he's there. And uh, his first response is always like, oh, it's about time you ask me a question. So they figure, all right, if we just ask him the second question, then we don't have to hear him whine and complain about not being asked questions. So uh, <laughs> that's why they went to him second. Why else would they? Um, so he was asked about the economy. And he went on this long answer about balancing budgets in Ohio and blah, 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 boring stuff that no one pays attention to. So, so rule number one of debating, don't bore people to death. That's, that's I mean, you could say the most brilliant thing ever, but if people are bored, it doesn't matter. Months ago, I remember we did a segment here about the power of stories. And I guess we did a quick little thing in the last segment about the power of laughter. There's a lot of science about behind that. It's really fascinating. But the power of stories. Every one of these candidates needs to have one story for every topic. So when they're asked about that topic, they can pull the story out of their back pocket. Because that's how you resonate with people. You tell stories. So Kasich was asked about the economy. So this is what Kasich, I'm making this up. But Kasich should say something like, well, Marie, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Because I just met a man yesterday, actually. His name is uh, his name's Chris. He's 54 years old. He has three kids. Loves his job. I should say loved his job. Worked hard to get where he is in his career and support his family. I hate him, Maria, but Chris told me that. His company just announced that they're moving. And I said, where are you moving to, Chris? Where's the company moving? He said, they're moving to Ireland. And now Chris is unemployed. And I'm thinking, why is this company moving to Ireland? And you want to know why, Maria? Because the corporate income tax in Ireland is 6.5%. And ours is 39%, the absolute highest in the world. We used to have the second highest in the world behind Japan, but then they wised up and lowered their corporate income tax to below ours. So now we are the most expensive place for a business to do business. So companies in America are moving to Ireland of all places and people like Chris are losing their job. So one thing I would do for the economy, one of many, is lower our corporate income tax to zero. Because then not only would Chris still be working at the job that he loves and providing for his family, but we would be the tax haven for companies all around the world. Companies from Mexico and China and Europe would be moving here. Companies from Ireland would say, we're out of here. We're moving to America. And they would escape their country's high taxes to the land of the free and low taxes. I mean, whatever. But bring up stories. Talk about people. And I think Kasich did talk about corporate taxes in his answer, but I don't even remember because it was whatever. People can't visualize numbers and all that stuff. Tell stories to make your point on the debate stage. I don't know why these people don't do it more often. Actually, Ben Carson does it the most, actually. And those are his most powerful moments. When he talks about brain surgery and stuff like that. So anyway, a little debate tip that no one asked for. But when you notice a candidate does it, look around at everyone else who hears it and they'll say, oh, that was a great answer. You'll know why. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
Alex Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America is the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. We got one more hour together. Flown by. Um, all right, I want to play this exchange here. I'm hesitant to play the whole thing just because I'm sure you've heard it a million times now. But try looking at it this time from a different perspective. Uh, I got a text a second ago from someone who said, I, I can't listen to anything Trump says. I can't be objective about it. <laughs> uh, I totally get it. Uh, but try here just for the sake of objective analysis and, and understanding how debates work and all that stuff. So try to take yourself out of this and uh, out of who you like the most. And listen to how these arguments are made. Because as we said earlier, Cruz is brilliant. Right? He's, and he's a brilliant man, one of the most brilliant men ever to go to Harvard Law, probably one of the most brilliant men to ever run for president, at least in our modern era. Um, and he's so good at these debates. Because he's been doing it forever. He's you know, like debate team champion since high school, that kind of stuff. So he's really good at crafting these arguments. And as Glenn um, exposed, he has an audiographic memory. So anytime he hears anything, he can remember it perfectly. Do you remember there was one part later in the debate where uh, Marco Rubio just rattled off a bunch of hate, not hate pieces, sorry, um, anti, like attack, attacks on Cruz. And Cruz goes, hold on, hold on. Rubio just said 11 things about me. Can I address those real fast? <laughs> and my wife and I looked at each other and we said, how did he know there were 11? There, there's a perfect example of his uh, audiographic memory. Um, so let's break this down here. We're going to play bits and pieces here. This first clip is about Ted Cruz's eligibility to run for president because he was born in Canada. Watch how he forms this. Um, watch how he builds a straw man. Because there is not a single person in this country who's making the argument that both your parents need to be American citizens, or b- both your parents need to be born in America in order for you to be proud. Like, there's no one making that argument. But he builds this straw man and tears it down beautifully. And he does such a good job of building it up and tearing it down that no one even pays attention to the fact that no one's ever made that argument <laughs> that, that he's attacking Trump for. Just really, really good debating. So watch how he does it. He does a masterful job. Enjoy. I'll start with you, Senator Cruz. Now, you are, of course, a strict constitutionalist. No one would doubt that. And as you know, the U.S. Constitution says only natural-born citizens are eligible for the office of President of the United States. Stop me if you've heard this before. Now, you were born, you were born in Canada to an American mother, so you were and are considered an American citizen. But that fellow next to you, Donald Trump, and others have said that being born in Canada means you are not natural born, and that has raised questions about your eligibility. Do you want to try to close this topic once and for all tonight? (laughs) Well, Neil, I'm glad we are focusing on the important topics of the evening. (laughs) You know, back in September, Uh, My friend Donald said that he had had his lawyers look at this from every which way. And there was no issue there. There was nothing to this birther issue. Now, (laughs) since September, the Constitution hasn't changed. (laughs) But the poll numbers have. And and I recognize, I, I recognize that Donald is dismayed that his poll numbers are falling in Iowa. 
But the facts and the law here are really quite clear. Under long-standing U.S. law, the child of a U.S. citizen born abroad is a natural-born citizen. If a soldier has a child abroad, that child is a natural-born citizen. That's why John McCain, even though he was born in Panama, was eligible to run for president. If an American missionary has a child abroad, that child is a natural-born citizen. That's why George Romney, Mitt's dad, was eligible to run for president, even though he was born in Mexico. At the end of the day, the legal issue is quite straightforward, but I would note that the birther theories that Donald has been relying on, some of the more extreme ones insist that you must not only be born on U.S. soil, but have two parents born on U.S. soil. Under that theory, not only would I be disqualified, Marco Rubio would be disqualified, Bobby Jindal would be disqualified, and interestingly enough, Donald J. Trump would be disqualified. Donald's mother was born in Scotland. She was naturalized. Now, Donald, but I was issue, born here. On the issue Remember. of citizenship, Donald. Big difference. On the issue of citizenship, Donald. I'm not going to use your mother's birth against you. Okay, good. <laughs> because it wouldn't work. You're an American, as is everybody else on this stage, and I would suggest we focus on who's best prepared to be commander in chief because that's the most important question facing the country. Right, so that's, that's perfect. That's a beautiful work of art right there in, in the world of debate craft. If you typed that message up, uh, that response up, it's just perfectly done. Now, again, total straw man. Like, <laughs> no, I've never heard anyone say that you need to have both your parents be born in America in order for you to be a naturalized citizen and eligible to be, uh, to be a uh, run for president. I've never heard that my entire life. Uh, if that were true, that both your parents needed to have been born here, born here, then Thomas Jefferson wouldn't be eligible because his dad, Peter, was born in Virginia, but his mom was born in England. So Thomas Jefferson wasn't eligible to be president because his mom was born in England. Like I've never heard such a foolish argument, but Cruz brought it up in order to tear it down and attack Trump because he's so good at this. And it was beautifully, beautifully done. And then he threw, uh, you know, threw in a little throwback to Reagan's response in 1984 uh, to the question that he was too old. Remember, um, uh, Cruz said something like, uh, Mr. Trump, I, I promise I'm not going to use your mother's birth against you. That was the crushing line. Uh, it reminded me of, of this clip right here. Not at all, Mr. Truitt, and I, and I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> right, to flip it around like that, just perfect. Uh, all right, so I want to play uh, Trump's rebuttal. Now, the only mistake that Cruz made in his initial response, the only thing I would have changed, is I wouldn't have brought up Trump's falling poll numbers. Because poll numbers is Donald Trump's baby. <laughs> right, that's his strong suit. You know, earlier we mentioned uh, pitching to Bryce Harper. If you're a major league pitcher, you get a scouting report on every pitcher. You don't pitch it low and outside to Bryce Harper. He's going to hit a home run on you every time. Don't do it. If Cruz had a pitching report, right, a, a, a scouting report on Donald Trump, it would say, don't bring up Trump's poll numbers. 
because you may bring up one pole where he's falling or one pole where you're, uh, you're, you're higher, but he's just going to rattle off 20 other poles where he's winning by a mile. So don't bring that up because all you're doing is giving him ammo. Again, I know this is kind of nerdy, you know, debate one-on-one talk. Um, and again, I think it's ridiculous that we put so much weight on these debates as we determine who's going to be a good president because they have nothing to do with each other. We might as well have them just, you know, run a foot race or play connect four or, um, like play Parcheesi or I mean, I don't like, it's ridiculous. Like there's, I played, I played a game of hearts the other day with some friends. We stayed up for hours playing hearts. It's a fun game, but like, that doesn't make me a good president of the United States. And neither does this, this being a good debater, but anyway, so, so Cruz shouldn't have brought up uh, the, the polls because that just gives him some ammo to return fire. Clip 93. Mr. Trump. Let me just tell you something, and you know because you just saw the numbers yourself. NBC Wall Street Journal just came out with a poll. Headline, Trump way up, Cruz going down. I mean, so don't, so you can't, you can't, I, they don't like the Wall Street Journal, they don't like NBC, but I like the poll. And frankly, <laughs> it just came out. And... <laughs> In Iowa now, as you know, Ted, in the last three polls, I'm beating you. So, you know, you shouldn't misrepresent how well you're doing with the polls. You don't have to say that. In fact, I was all for you until you started doing that because that's a misrepresentation. Number one. Number two, this isn't me saying it. I don't care. I think I'm going to win fair and square. I don't have to win this way. Thank you. Lawrence Tribe and numerous from Harvard, of Harvard, said that there is a serious question as to whether or not Ted can do this, okay? There are other attorneys that feel, and very, very fine constitutional attorneys, that feel that because he was not born on the land, he cannot run for office. Here's the problem. We're running, we're running. He does great. I win. I choose him as my vice presidential candidate, and the Democrats sue because we can't take him along for the... See, they don't like that. They don't like that. No, they don't like that he beats the rest of the field because they want me. But, <laughs> but if for some reason, Neil, he beats the rest of the field, I already know the Democrats are going to be bringing a suit. You have a big lawsuit over your head while you're running. And if you become the nominee, who the hell knows if you can even serve in office? So you should go out, get a declaratory judgment, let the courts decide. And you why shouldn't you, have mentioned the polls because I would have been much well, different. Why now? Why are you raising this issue now? Because now he's doing a little bit better. No, I didn't care before. It's true. No, it's true. <laughs> hey, look, he never had a chance. Now it's he's true. doing better. He's got probably a four or five percent chance. <laughs> and Trump gives a big old grin here because he knows he's trying to dig himself out. That's great. Um, okay, so the one good thing Trump did there and then the two bad things, and then you'll, you'll know they're bad because, uh, again, it's giving ammunition to the other side. Debating is a, it's a game of chess. It's not just your move. It's the next move that the person's going to make. So the good thing that Trump did there, as we talked about earlier, everything's from a position of strength. So what he did is he talked about when I win the race, if I choose to make him my VP, then there's going to be a problem, right? So he just frames it that way as Cruz being potential vice presidential material. But that's all he is. He's, he's vice presidential material. When I win, I may choose him as my VP. <laughs> which is great the way he frames it that way. So that was good from Trump. Here's the two bad things. Um, well, one bad thing, sorry. 
His approach is the all shucks approach. This is one more good thing. Sorry. The all shucks approach. The, uh, listen, I don't care you know, about this. It doesn't matter to me, but the Democrats are going to care. They're the ones, who, right? That's a great way to attack a candidate in a debate or to attack someone in a debate. It's the whole like, well, listen, I mean, if it's up to me, whatever, I agree, but it's not about me. It's about what these people think, right? Really, really good um, way to distance yourself from the attack. Here's the bad thing he did. He brought up this Lawrence Tribe guy. So in the argument world, this is called argument from authority. Usually it's pretty good, but not when the other guy knows who the expert is. Not when the other guy knows the authority you're bringing up. Again, you're just giving him ammunition to come back on you with. Do we have time to play clip 90, um, 95? Okay, let's go and play clip 95 here. So this is the, the rebuttal, but listen to how he rebukes the Larry Tribe part. All right, so, so Trump... Got this great um, softball from Cruz about poll numbers, right? He hit it out of the park. But then he throws a softball to Cruz about uh, Larry Tribe. Didn't need to do it. Here it is. You really can't. You can't do that to the party. You have to have certainty. Even if it was a 1% chance, and it's far greater than 1%, because he wasn't born. I mean, you have great constitutional lawyers that say you can't run. If there was a, and, the, and you know, I'm not bringing a suit, I promise. But the Democrats are going to bring a lawsuit. And you can't, you have to have certainty. You can't have a question. I can agree with you or not, but you can't have a question over your head. Senator, you want to respond? Well, listen, I've spent my entire life defending the Constitution before the U.S. Supreme Court, and I'll tell you, I'm not going to be taking legal advice from Donald Trump. You don't Trump. have to. Take it from Lawrence. So that's an old line there. That's fine. This is the on your feet line. What I will Take tell it from you your also, own professor. I can, if I can tell you one thing. The chances of any litigation proceeding and succeeding on this are zero. Now, Mr. Trump is very focused on Larry Tribe. Let me tell you who Larry Tribe is. He's a left-wing judicial activist Harvard Law professor who was Al Gore's lawyer in Bush versus Gore. He's a major Hillary Clinton supporter, and there's a reason why Hillary's supporters are echoing Donald's attacks on me. He is not Hillary the only one. Wants he to is face not Donald the only Trump one. In the there general are many election. lawyers. And I'll tell you what, Donald, you, you very kindly just a moment ago offered me the VP slot. <laughs> I'll tell you what. If this all works out, I'm happy to consider naming you as VP. And so if you happen to be right, you could get the top job at no, the end of the day. No, I, I think if it doesn't... Funny, we can stop there. Funny, quick line. Uh, that's why Cruz is so good at this stuff. But do you see the softball that Trump gave up to him? Trump didn't have to say Larry Tribe. He could have just said constitutional lawyers. He didn't need to say Larry Tribe. Because given that softball to uh, Cruz, Larry Tribe was Ted Cruz's professor. Right, so Ted Cruz knows all about Larry Tribe and is able to uh, knock him down, thereby knocking down the entire argument that Trump was making. So unwise move by Trump in the debate world to uh, to bring up a specific person, because when you do that, if the per- if the other guy can tear down the person, they tear down your argument. So Cruz hit that softball out of the park and and certainly got the better out of that exchange, or maybe Trump did because the longer that people are talking about Cruz's eligibility. The worse for the worse for Cruz, the better for Trump. So maybe in the end, Trump thinks he uh, he still came out on top just because people are talking about one eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. But when you watch the next debate, whenever it is, I think in February thirteenth or something like that, um, 
watch the softballs, right? The candidates will lob up a softball every once in a while. And if you can limit those and think a step ahead, then the other candidates won't have uh, proper rebuttals. And that's how you win in a, uh, in a debate. No one's better at it than Cruz, even though he slipped up a couple times. one 888 Mike Slater, show the blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Each candidate has those sweet spots. Or if you pitch it to them, they'll hit it every time. Don't talk about poll numbers to Donald Trump. If you mention a poll where you're improving or he's fallen, he'll rattle off 20 other polls that say otherwise. If you're going to say something to Cruz, don't mention his Harvard Law professor that he knows everything about. And will give you every way that that professor is in the tank for Hillary Clinton and undermine your entire argument. Watch out for those sweet spots. If you're debating Ben Carson, bring up foreign policy questions. He has a low batting average there. That's, that's high and inside for him. That's a high and inside pitch. Don't bring up poverty to Ben Carson. That's low and outside. He'll hit home runs. Marco Rubio, bring up immigration, high and inside. Don't bring up anything related to the American dream. He'll hit home runs with that. And what's so interesting about Cruz, so does that make sense in the, last, in the last exchange we just played? Each candidate, Cruz threw a lob to Trump, and then Trump threw a lob back to Cruz. And that's why there was that back and forth, because they each kept throwing softballs. But it's interesting with Cruz on the, the last line, uh, the last um, exchange that we played in the last hour about New York values, is Cruz knew that Trump was going to bring up 9-11. They played out that entire exchange in the newspapers a couple days before the debate. Cruz brought up New York values. Trump brought up 9-11. It was over the newspapers. So Cruz knew that if you bring up New York values, Trump is going to play the 9-11 card. I don't know why he backed himself into a corner about it. It's very odd. Again, I know he's kicking himself about it. Why would you bring that up if you knew he was going to play the 9-11 card and do a good job with it? It's a tricky card to play these days. You shouldn't play it nearly ever. Uh, but but Trump handled it very well, and we talked about why he was able to handle it well earlier. I won't repeat myself there, but I will repeat myself on, on this one last point. These debates have very little to do with becoming president, and I wish we didn't put so much importance on them, but whoever wins this nomination is going to have how many debates with Hillary Clinton? Do you know how many debates the presidential candidates have? Is it three, five? Five sounds like a lot. Maybe three. So whoever does win these, uh, this nomination, they're going to need to pitch against Hillary Clinton and not throw her softballs right where she wants them. So I guess in a way it is important to think about who's best skilled at this. Who has the, who has the most skills in this uh, game? because they're going to go play that same game against Hillary Clinton in a, uh, just a couple months now. At this debate game, Trump is excellent. Cruz is maybe the best out. Mike Slater, show the blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. Sorry, Crusaders. I uh, got a couple emails here about 13 hours. Going to watch it tonight. We talked a lot about it earlier. I hope you can find uh, a couple hours this weekend or, or next to watch this movie. Got a note here from, let me do Joe first. Uh, Joe said, I saw it last weekend. He's in the military. He saw it on the military base last week. And he said, it's uh, painful. He said, even though I know the story, I still wanted to have hope that they would be saved. Terry, uh, Terry said a couple days ago, she said, oh, we're going tonight with my husband. Um, and I said, oh, let me know what you think. And then that night she wrote back. She said, it's difficult to put into words. I need time to process my overwhelming emotions. I'll get back to you. So the next day she said, all right, here's my assessment. For those who haven't followed the tragedy of Benghazi, the movie is hopefully a catalyst for them to begin asking questions. And that's what we've been saying. For myself, it was as inspiring as it was disheartening. The movie appropriately highlights the heroics of a few good men, reminding us that there are still Americans guided by honor. However, in contrast, it also shows how apathetic our government can be. I come from a long line of patriots. I never want to believe that our country is, or I want to believe that our country is always there for our fellow citizen, never abandoning, always ready to fight. I was crestfallen to see on the big screen how wrong I've been. I'm not ashamed to say that I cried for what they went through and for my own loss of blind faith in Americans. Um, so, go watch the movie. And, and uh, Every interview I've seen with the, the guys who were there, they've all said it's perfect. They say it's exactly like what happened. They wouldn't have added a thing or taken away a thing. Yeah, I'm reminded of the story of uh, told by Xenophon. It was a Greek historian around, uh, I don't know, 400 or something, 400 BC, student of Socrates. And he told this story, um, and it was very popular among our founding generation. Not just our founding fathers, but the, but the children and, and men in the 1700s. This was a very popular story. Not to mention, you know, every from 400 BC to then too, but, but particularly they are founding generation, which is very important. This story right here was really at, at the heart of, of how they created our country and the vision they had for our country. This is a very influential story. So here's how it's, uh, I'll mix, I'll tell the story here and I'll mix between quoting it and, and paraphrasing. <clears throat> so Hercules it's called the choice of Hercules. Hercules went into the wilderness and he was having a bit of a uh, early life crisis. He didn't know what he wanted to do with his life, what choices he wanted to make, where he wanted to go. So he went out into the wilderness to, to find his vision. And he was out there and two women approached him. And the first woman said, my dear Hercules, I find you are very much divided in your thoughts upon the way of life that you ought to choose. Be my friend and follow me. I will lead you into the possession of pleasure and out of the reach of pain. And I will remove you from all the noise of business. And the affairs of peace or war will, will not, they'll have no power to disturb you. 
your whole enjoyment, excuse me, your whole employment shall be to make your life easy and to entertain every sense you have with its proper gratifications, sumptuous tables, beds of roses, clouds of perfumes, concerts of music, crowds of beauties, and all in readiness to receive you. Come along with me into this region of delights, this world of pleasure, and bid farewell forever to care, to to pain, and to pleasure. Sorry, I jacked that up. Bid farewell forever to care, to pain, and to business. Apologies. So the name of that woman was Happiness, the first woman to approach Hercules. Then the other lady came to Hercules and said, Hercules, before I invite you into my society and friendship, I will be open and sincere with you. And I, I got to tell you, this established truth that there is nothing truly valuable which can be purchased without pains and labor. The gods have set a price upon every real and noble pleasure. And if you would gain favor of the deity, you must be at the pains of worshiping him. If you want to have friends, you must oblige them. You must serve them. You must love them. If you want to be honored by your country, you must take care to serve it. In short, if you would be eminent in war or peace, you must become master of all the qualifications that can make you so. These are the only terms and conditions upon which I can propose happiness. And the first woman comes back and says, See, look, she admits that the way of her pleasures are long and difficult, but the way I propose is short and easy. Which do you choose? Does that make sense, right? So he's trying to figure out which way to go. Am I going to go the way of this first woman who says, oh, I'm going to give you everything you've ever dreamed of. The music, the perfume, the roses, the food, the women. I'm going to give you everything. And you don't have to worry about a thing. Never. You don't have to worry about anything. You'll be out of the reach of pain. I'm going to give you pleasures all day long. Everything you've ever dreamed of. You'll never have to worry about business or war or peace or anything. Everything you want, I'll give it to you. And the other woman says, mm, well, it's going to be hard. But there's nothing valuable that can be purchased without pains and labor. So come my way and it's going to be difficult, but it's going to be worth it. And there's a painting of this moment. And the, the, the one woman, the, the second woman, she's pointing to a mountain as she's talking to Hercules. Saying basically, if you want to come with me, we're going to have to climb this mountain. Now, obviously, Hercules chose the long and difficult path. John Adams, when they were figuring out what the seal of America was going to be, Jefferson and Franklin, they wanted the scene to be Exodus because America was the second great Exodus from tyranny. Right, the first, the Israelites from, uh, from uh, Pharaoh. And we were the great, the second great Exodus from tyranny, the United States of America. So they thought the, the seal of America should be the a scene from the first great Exodus. But John Adams suggested this scene, Hercules. And he said with one woman trying to seduce him to vice and then the other woman, virtue, pointing to the rugged mountain and persuading him to ascend. That's what they wanted for our country. 
That's what they wanted for us. That's what our founding fathers wanted for us. They knew, they, I mean, if you want to put it in modern speak, they didn't want to give you everything. They wanted to create a situation where you were free to earn it and create it and build it and make it. And it was going to be hard, but anything worth it is hard. And this is what any, any parent wants for their kids, right? They want them to choose the path of Hercules. Basically, do you want to live your life on a cruise ship or a battleship? That's what it comes down to. Do you want to live on a cruise ship or a battleship? Cruise ships are nice, right? Because when you get on it, you, it's a vacation. You expect everything to be comfortable and wonderful and all that. But over time, the people that you're, you're hanging out with, oh, they start to annoy you. And that food that was so delicious the first couple of days, eh, it doesn't start tasting so good anymore. Have you ever been to an all-inclusive? I've never done a cruise ship, but have you ever been in an all-inclusive? Oh, the first day in an all-inclusive, it's crazy, right? You're walking around. You're like, I don't even know where to eat. There's so many places. And by the third day, you're like, Bruh. Well, this doesn't even taste good anymore. I don't even know why I want it. <laughs> the food's just not good. Like three, four days. You're like, oh, I just want to go home. That's a cruise ship life. And that's what the first woman was calling for Hercules. But then you get the battleship life. And yeah, the people on the battleship may bother you from time to time. And the food's no good. But none of those things matter because you're on a mission. You have a common purpose. And the strength comes from action. If you choose the life on a battleship. And I thought of this when we were thinking about um, talking about 13 hours. Because clearly these are men who chose the battleship life. Who chose the life of virtue. Who understood, men who understood that anything worth having is worth striving for. I don't know. I look forward to seeing it tonight. We'll report back next week. But there's one scene from the trailer. You may have seen it. And the guy says, you don't have to go. Have you ever seen that? And I I forget what the second line is, but it's something, it's like, you don't have to go. You don't have to do this. You don't, we, everyone here, I know there's like five guys. We, We can stay right. You can stay right here but I'm going. I haven't seen the movie, but I have a feeling that all those guys go. That's an opportunity, right? They were, they were given a chance, a choice. There's a fork in the road. You can either choose at this moment, the cruise ship path or the battleship path. Now the cruise ship path is following orders. They told you to stand down. You can stand down. You can, you're free from all um, liability, right? You're just following orders. It's totally fine. Um, it's the cruise ship choice. Or you can come with me and do the right thing. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You may die. Who's with me? Oh, and then when we're done, we're going to get in big trouble for it. Come on, let's go. It's that mentality that built our country. Think about it. Wow, we you know we can choose choose the cruise ship life. We got it pretty comfy here in the uh, in the colonies. I know, I know we build it up a lot that you know life was terrible in the colonies. I mean, it was seventeen seventy six, so life wasn't that good for anyone in the world. But you know you're under the protection of the British crown. You got a lot of trade coming in. Things are pretty good in the colonies, so we can live a cruise ship life and, and everything will be fine here. Or we can live the battleship life and we can start a new country, and in the process commit treason. And if we get caught, then we'll be hanged. Who's with me? <laughs> right, they chose the battleship life. Thank God they did. And we have that choice every day. 
1-888-933-93. I'll stop ran. 13 hours. Check it out. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, thanks for being here today. I appreciate it. I want to wrap up with this uh, analogy here. We've talked the last couple weeks about what happened in Germany on New Year's Eve with uh, 1,000 Middle Eastern and North African males uh, assaulting and molesting. uh, Now it looks like 130 women in Cologne have come forward. And uh, that's just in one city in Germany. Many cities across uh, Germany and across Europe, uh, this happened. Uh, Groups of uh, North African Middle Eastern men. I just got a report here, too, that a group of men from North or males from North Africa stoned to death a trans person, transgendered person in a German city, uh, Dortmund. Two transgender women stoned them right near the train station. The station. Within seconds, we were. I guess they didn't kill them, so they just stoned them. Within seconds, we were tossed around, and they took stones from a gravel bed on the corner and threw them at us. So. And then, and then the subheadline under Drudge is about the neo-Nazi rise in Germany. Okay, right. So that's going to be pretty ugly there. Europe's in really bad, uh, bad spot. Have you ever heard of the uh, uh, free surface effect? I'll try to explain it real quick. People in boating have heard about it before. The short of it is, if you don't tie the things down that are on top of the boat, when the boat rocks from side to side, all the things on top sway to one side of the boat, and it tips it a little bit further. And then the boat rocks to the other side and then everything on top you know, uh, slides across the deck to the other side, tips it a little bit further in that direction. And then the boat sways to the other side and goes a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further. And then eventually it tips over. Um, imagine a plastic water bottle, eh, like half full, and tip it on its side. Like, and then you hold it in the middle and just tip it a little bit to one side and all the water like rushes to one side and slams up against the side. And then you tilt it to the other side and the force of the water sli- rushes to the other side and has a little more force to it, right? And you do that back and forth, and eventually it'll tip right over. So that's how boats often tip over. It's called the free surface effect. Um, it happens in countries too. This back and forth, and every time it gets more extreme, it gets more vocal, and then each side has to outdo the other side. It just gets worse and worse and worse, and eventually it tips over. Europe, much more prone to this. We have an important stabilizer in America. Two things. Uh, first, just our inherent ingrained uh, under... Well, I shouldn't say it like that. I'm sorry. Our uh, heretofore uh, understood appreciation for the First Amendment. That's the first thing. Secondly, though, the, the big one is the Constitution. That's our foundation. The Constitution prevents and stabilizes the sways. Right. The Constitution uh, is meant to protect us from sudden violence sways in one direction or the other. The problem is the more that the Constitution is chipped away, the weaker that protection is that prevents us from tipping over. You know, I've heard a lot of people say that Donald Trump is a, is a reaction to the Obama years. And that may be true. Let's say that, that Obama gave rise to Trump. 
Obama's lawlessness and arrogance and unconstitutional executive measures gave rise to a counter-Trump, like the, the opposite of him, a, a, or the a, a counter-Obama, and that's Donald Trump. And a lot of people may be worried about what Trump will do with those same powers. And I'll tell you, I'm less worried about what Trump will do as much as I'm concerned about what Trump will give rise to. But the swashing back and forth, it's got to stop. The Constitution will center us. A king never will. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.